This is the Bartender Journey Podcast. Hey, it's the Bartender Journey Podcast number 144. My name is Brian Vincent Weber. Thank you so much for joining me today. This is the podcast that talks all about bartending and cocktails and spirits. Well, today on the show, we have Steve Redcliffe, the editor of the Essential New York Times Book of Cocktails. This is an awesome book, and we had a, uh, we had a great conversation. And uh, we have two guests today. We're also going to talk to Raza Zaidi. He's from Oaxaca, Mezcal. And uh, we talked about Mezcal recently on show number 134 with Misty Colcoffin from Del Megway Mezcal. But it's such an interesting subject, and I just want to... Want to know more? I want to learn more. There's a lot to learn. So we're going to talk again about mezcal. We're going to learn some new things, and uh, we're going to taste some mezcals as well. First, we'll do our cocktail of the week, and it's actually from Oaxaca Mezcal's website. And uh, this cocktail is called Cucumber Salt and Smoke by Lyndon Pride. I'm not sure who that is, uh, but whoever Lyndon was uh, credited with this drink on on that website, so I I credit him as well. We're going to take a one inch cucumber slice chop it up a bit and muddle that in a uh, cocktail shaker we're going to add one ounce Oaxaca Mezcal the Wahoven Espadine one ounce Capo Pisco one ounce fresh lemon juice one ounce simple syrup and a pinch of salt I, I like sea salt and uh, muddle that up some more we're going to add an egg white now uh, we've been talking about egg whites on the show uh, for a few weeks now and uh, we, we talked about how uh, Jeffrey Morgenthaler likes to uh, beat the egg whites a bit before adding adding it to the cocktail shaker so I decided to give that a try and it worked out real well so we're gonna shake that I gave it a dry shake added uh, some ice of course shook it again the original recipe calls uh, for a a wine glass or a coupe glass um, which is awesome it would be great but uh, I I put it on the rocks I put it in an old-fashioned glass on the rocks and I'll tell you why. I just today received some extremely cool cocktail stirrer tops from Drinkware. And uh, they're made out of uh, zinc. And then these little cute little tops are welded to the top. And then uh, the entire stir is plated in food-grade silver. And they are so much fun. They, uh, there's a robot one, a bow tie, a mustache, a deer head, a camera, and a cassette tape. Some of you might not know what a cassette tape is. You can Google it, <laughs> or uh, I'll put a picture, of course, of these uh, stirrers on the website, bartenderjourney.net. Um, but I use the robot uh, just because it's so awesome for this cocktail, and not that it has anything to do with the drink, but it's, uh, screw it, I love it. It's so fun. So, uh, like I said, on bartenderjourney.net, you'll see a picture of the cocktail of the week, you'll see the recipe, and you'll see uh, the picture of my cocktail with the robot stirrer in it, and uh, I'll, sh- I'll have a picture of uh, all six of these stirrers. The stirrers come in and a set of six is a variety pack, or you can get a set of four matching ones. Uh, so, and you can choose short or tall for an old-fashioned glass or a Collins glass. And uh, there'll be Amazon links where you can check out the stirrers from Drinkwire. And, of course, the book of the week on bartenderjourney.net. Anytime you use one of those Amazon links on uh, bartenderjourney.net, they're affiliate rank links, and they uh, it helps out the show a little bit. They send uh, a few uh, shekels this way, a few pennies this way for each purchase. And uh, whether you buy the product suggested there or you just click through an Amazon link to get to Amazon and buy something else, you'll be helping out the show a little bit. I'd sure appreciate that. Well, uh, back to the drinkware stirs. Their, their, their sort of slogan is the original hip stir. Get it? Hip stir. <laughs> Clever. All right, let's talk to Steve Redcliffe, editor of the essential New York Times Book of Cocktails. He was sitting at his desk in, uh, at the New York Times when he spoke uh, with me for, via Skype. So there's a bit of office noise, but uh, that's okay. And uh, so after Steve, we'll talk to Raza Zaidi from Oaxaca, Mezcal. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's great to meet you. 
Yeah, nice to meet you. The book is the book is awesome. Hey, thanks very much. Thank you. It's the uh, New York Times Book of Cocktails, and uh, we're here with the editor Steve Red- Redcliffe. So uh, this must have been really interesting for you to uh, go through all these articles. They're they're all New York Times articles from the past how many years? Uh, 150. Wow. <laughs> but there but there aren't that many from 150 years ago. Trust me. So yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, you know it's a lot of punches and juleps. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun to put together, and they all are from the Times. Uh, and one of the great things is to kind of look through a century and a half of American drinking and cocktailing. So it was a lot of fun to read what people were drinking then, which is somewhat similar to a lot of classics that have been revived, or I would say over the last 10 years. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're really in a good uh, position to uh, to create sort of a cocktail timeline, you know, after, after this project. After <laughs> yes, this project, it, it I did. did, you know, the, with the gap for Prohibition. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but the majority of the articles seem to be from the last 10 years or so, right? Well, I think... Um, I would say that's yes, because I think it correspond with, uh, corresponds with the uh, revival in cocktails, uh, the whole craft cocktail uh, revolution, which uh, I think really – I don't think that's really overstating it. I think it is kind of a revolution, and, uh, and it's just an enormously good time to, to be out having a drink at a bar or making a drink at your house with all the great spirits you can get now. That's right, yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's a huge book, by the way, and there's like, – <laughs> I don't know how many recipes, tons of recipes, great recipes. Yeah, it's close to 400. Wow. I, uh, I actually mix myself up a tiki bird from the, from the book. So <laughs> cheers. Here's to you. <laughs> okay. Well, good. It's good. It's method, uh, method interviewing. Exactly. <laughs> but, um, it's such a, it's such a big book and it's, I, you know, I didn't get through it cover to cover, but I keep, uh, and I don't think you need to read this kind of book cover to cover. It's all, it's, they're all separate articles, right? They are. And one of the fun things, uh, in putting it together and I, I hope as a reader is that you can kind of dive in and out. If you say, oh, I'd like to read this uh, piece by William Grimes on early cocktails and Jerry Thomas, you could do that. If you want to read Toby Cicchini talking about a Negroni and how to make it as well as you can, you could do that too. You could just kind of zip around and you think, oh, I wonder what people were drinking at the Regis uh, in the punch era in the early 1900s. You can do that. Those aren't really, uh, that's not really a long read either, I will tell you. You can, you can, you can do a quick read. Well, my, somehow my book keeps slipping open to the page that says, uh, Curing the Cosmo Blues, but every every time I see that, I swear, I swear it says cursing the Cosmo. <laughs> every time. Well, you know what? We give the Cosmo its due, and uh, and Toby Cicchini, who's one of the contributors to the book, is uh, is an inventor of that drink, and uh, he wrote a funny book about being a bar, uh, not just necessarily funny, but a good book about being a bartender himself, and uh, kind of the effect of that drink. Which uh, I don't know how many people order it right now, but you know. It's not a bad drink. Yeah, well, he suggests making a uh, white Cosmo, which actually isn't is not a bad drink at all. I and think. plus it looks great. Yeah. You know, it's a very cool-looking drink, and, you know, uh, that presentation is always a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and, of course, you have to squeeze fresh lime juice. Don't use that Rose's lime juice. It's been sitting around forever. Which I think <laughs> I think that's right, and I think that's – I think that – I think making your own juices, uh, your own syrup, your own juices is just uh, – it adds such a vibrancy to a drink, as you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's – yeah, that's kind of the cornerstone, in a way, to this whole new – uh, cocktail movement, if we're going to call it that. <laughs> yeah, I think that is. I think, uh, you know, great fresh juices, 
uh, a simple syrup that you can uh, just make the basic or some variations. Uh, you know, you can use demerara so uh, to give it a little uh, a little more body if you want. And I also think just uh, availing yourself of the just the great spirits are out there. You know, from from gin to to whiskey to uh, vermouths. Yeah, I'm I'm fascinated with vermouths. I mean, it's just such an interesting subject that you know a lot of people don't know enough about. I think that's true, and I think. Uh, Simply because it's happened uh, probably in the last two years, really. It's, uh, that's an area that I'd like to read a little more. And I think uh, if we ever do another volume, I hope we have more Vermouth pieces in there. Yeah, yeah. Have you read uh, Adam Ford's book? I have. I have. That's a great and, book, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, um, I like uh, I like spirits books generally. I think uh, there's always good history in there. I think, you know, Robert Simonson's old-fashioned book is it's just an, it's an excellent volume. It's mm-hmm. handsome, good history. Lots of recipes, uh, some of which you probably never make. But for yeah. uh, a read, you think, well, maybe I would have that one day. Yeah, yeah. Well, on the uh, we were talking about fresh juices, but on the other side of that, uh, a bar that has no juice at all, Amari Amargo. That's such a cool place. I love that place. It's funny. I was just there the other night. Met a friend of a friend who has a rum company, and we went there, and uh, it was uh, even though that place, as you know, is super small, it was a kind of a quiet. Uh, Tuesday night early yeah. on, so it was pretty fun. You got a seat at the bar and you got to hang out a little bit, which was uh, which is what you want to do there. But was Souther behind the bar? He was not. He was not. Lindsay, but Lindsay was there. So. Yeah, <laughs> funny, funny. Every time I've been there, I haven't. Uh, he, he has not been behind the bar, but uh, I got a chance to meet him recently. Uh, he gave a seminar down at the uh, Tampa Repeal Day uh, conference. It was like a three or four day uh, conference that I went to recently, and he gave a great talk. Great well, he talk. is a he is a great talker. Uh, yeah. he's, uh, no, he's just uh, he's uh, fascinating guy. Yeah, he is, and he just knows the history of cocktails that I think uh, has a great enthusiasm for them that I think, you know, it's pretty easy to share. I think that's one reason people go to that bar. It's, yeah. uh, you know, it's not like a academic college lecture, but it is, it is a lot of fun. He talked about the, um, what he calls the fascinators around the bar, all the little things that are, you know, up on shelves and there's just tons of things to look at and talk about. <laughs> yeah. From the bitter selection on and, uh, you know, you're looking at the Amaros across the way and he can speak on every, every one of those. Yep, and, uh, yep. and give you the history and kind of uh, a good analysis of their flavors and what they bring to a drink. Right, right. Now, Toby talked about the Boulevardier and how it's sort of un- unrepresented in, in uh, the modern cocktail culture, which I totally agree with. I love that drink. Uh, it is a great drink. And uh, in fact, I had one at his place, uh, the Long Island Bar, not too long ago because it is, of course, on the menu. Uh, mm. He is such an advocate for it. And I, I agree with you. I think it's one of the great cocktails. It really is. And it's uh, it's just strange that it hasn't appeared more, you know, in this in this new culture maybe people just don't want to pronounce it <laughs> <laughs> they're worried they're gonna say it wrong yeah well yeah, there's, there's you know, something there to no, that and a bar in a good bar there is no wrong They'll just they'll make you the drink. Oh man, I remember uh, years and years ago. I'll give my age away a little bit, but uh, Pui Fusé was a big one, you know, just because it was <laughs> it was easy to say. I think for Americans, that's why you know it's fun. <laughs> it's fun fun to say, but people could actually pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. Uh, mezcal. Let's talk about mezcal a bit. I, lo- I love the uh, the drink recipe in there. Great title. Great name for a drink. They didn't burn Rome in a day. <laughs> that, that is a great drink. Just a few minutes ago, you were talking about vermouth. I think this is another spirit that. I hope uh, – I think it had a slight slight revival, a slight surge in popularity, and I just uh, – I hope that continues a little more because it adds such a great 
you know, deep dimension to any kind of cocktail. Oh, it, it is. Um, I mean, especially in the bartender community, it's it's really hot right now. And I mean, you know, you couldn't go anywhere at Tales of the Cocktail this year without seeing some mezcal somewhere. So uh, it's everybody's really into it. Well, that's good. I think uh, I think there are a lot of good drinks with it. And obviously, depending on which mezcal you like, uh, you can uh, you can have a lot of fun with all sorts of different drinks. And it's such an interesting subject when you once you start learning about it, you know, and they're, they're usually handmade in these very small villages by people that have been doing it for generations. And uh, the agave plants, of course, take anywhere from eight, ten, twelve, even thirty years to grow. Well, I hope I hope there's some appreciation of it going forward. Uh, I agree with you that uh, the people kind of get into it the way they have, for example, scotch and then rye. Yeah. Well, I think uh, the high-end tequila has kind of paved the way for, for mezcal, you know? I think you're right. I think they, 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 they forged that path and then people were ready to expand a little once they uh, were happy with Cuervo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> so uh, Rosie Shep, such an interesting uh, character. I, lo- I loved her article about the Manhattan. I didn't know... Uh, about her husband and all that, so that was, that was really interesting. Good that you mentioned that. It's one of, that's one of my favorite pieces in the entire book. Yeah, and uh, I think uh, she's such a she's so good at connecting a cocktail to a meaningful moment in life. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that every drink piece she writes uh, is, uh, but she's able to make sure that. When you remember a cocktail, you'll remember it for maybe where you had it, uh, the circumstances you had it in. Uh, generally speaking, for her, uh, those have, have kind of been in enduring memories. And uh, I think uh, I think there is an emotional component to, to these uh, to a lot of these drinks, whether it was a, a fun cocktail you had with your dad or. Uh, early romance and Amori Amargo, or uh, you know, you can remember where you were. And uh, oh, it's like having a great meal. You know, you're like, oh, remember, you know, remember when we had that, you know, that that pasta that night at that restaurant out, you know, outside in Italy, you know, whatever. I think that's right. I think, uh, and I think, uh, I think that can be forgotten too uh, in terms of cocktails. That uh, you know, it's just not doing Long Island iced teas. So maybe that'll that, that's a different kind of memory altogether. <laughs> And I'm not the opposite Long of memory. Iced tea. You can make a good Long Island iced tea. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the opposite of memory. That's uh... <laughs> <laughs> that's probably true. That's that's probably is. That's probably no memory at all. <laughs> and uh, I loved Rosie's uh, Paloma recipe recipe with basil. That's that sounds yummy. Well, she's good at. Uh, she does a lot of herbs. Yeah. Uh, a lot of interesting syrups. Uh, she writes the column once a month for the New York Times Magazine, the drink column, yeah. uh, which I think is kind of an adventure. It's an adventure piece. She uh, she takes readers to kind of different destinations in terms of what kind of cocktail or drink they'll have. It, it's a lot of fun to me. I look forward to those pieces every month. Yeah, yeah, me too. They're great and great. Well, uh, yeah, the, the Tiki Bird was a good drink. I'll just, we'll make that our cocktail <laughs> of the week. It's uh, okay. half an ounce of simple syrup, one and a half ounce uh, black strap rum, three quarters ounce Campari, which is of course what drew me to that drink in the first place. <laughs> well, I'm a big Campari fan. I'm with you. I'm with you. I will have one of those later this week, which is, which is tomorrow, because that's okay. the end of the week. There you go. <laughs> and uh, just to finish off the recipe, one and a half ounce of pineapple juice and half an ounce of lime juice. So that's great. Well, the New York Times always has those uh, sort of zingers at the end of the, every article. You know, even if I don't have time to read through an, a whole article, I'll always read like the last two paragraphs. Do you, do you, guys, have an, do you guys have a name for that? Like I call it the zinger. I don't know. <laughs> uh, we call them kickers. Kickers. There you go. Yes, that's that's our uh, that's our uh, highfalutin term. 
which is which is pretty close to a zinger. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. I think that's a good place to wrap it up then with the kicker. Uh, that will be our kicker today, Brian. Thank you very much. Steve, I appreciate it very much. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time. Well, there you go. That was a fun conversation. And uh, I forgot we did a cocktail of the week inside the interview. So uh, two cocktails of the week this week. <laughs> the Tiki Bird, that's a good drink. Now I'll have to make one of those and take a picture of it and put it on the website. Hopefully I get around to doing that. <laughs> I'll make two cocktails to post up this week. But I'll be sure to post the recipe uh, for both of the cocktails of the week and uh, hopefully pictures of both too. And uh, that's, of course, on bartenderjourney.net. And while you're at bartenderjourney.net, look for the uh, Amazon link for this book, The Essential New York Times Book of Cocktails, edited by Steve Redcliffe. So uh, pick up this book. I think you'll really enjoy it. I I sure do. I I still have a lot more to uh, read. It's a huge book. Stand by. We have another interview. We're going to talk to Raza about Mezcal. But first, speaking of bartenderjourney.net, I made a few uh, upgrade, well, additions to the uh, to the website. I added an events page with things like Tales of the Cocktail and uh, Whiskey Live coming up in New York and a few other industry events. And uh, if you have something to add to the page, please let me know. You can email me at brian at bartenderjourney.net. I started a tastings page too. Uh, so far, there's just one entry there, but uh, I'll be adding, I'll be adding my thoughts and tasting notes of various spirits on that page as well. And uh, also on the tastings page, there's a great graphic for you. It's a it's a tasting wheel, and it was provided by Westland Distillery out of Seattle, Washington. I spoke with Matt Hoffman, the master distiller of Westland, recently, and uh, you can look for that on a future episode. But but this graphic is great. It's uh it's you have to check it out. It, it really helps you when you're trying to evaluate uh, spirits. On the tasting wheel, there's things like peaty and woody and floral, fruity, and then it expands from there. So, for instance, uh, under fruity, it goes to citrus, and then from there, uh, lemon, lime, orange, tangerine. Um, so, and there's you know, big wheel, lots of different categories, uh, which really it's a big help when you're uh, when you're trying to learn how to taste spirits and uh, describe them. So on the right hand side of the tasting page, there's a tiny little graphic you'll see, uh, but if you click on that, it'll expand and you'll see it bigger. It's it's a scan of a of a piece of paper. So uh, <laughs> forgive the uh, staples in the middle of it, but uh, but it's a really big help and uh, really appreciate Westland Distillery uh, allowing us to reproduce that. All right, let's talk to Raza about mezcal. And don't forget to uh, stay tuned to the very end of the podcast for our toast. We do a toast every week at the very end. So uh, I tried something a little new with uh, Raza's call. I was going to try tried a Google Plus rather than Skype this time. And uh, the, uh, we, we struggled with, uh, with quality. So uh, I'm going to be jumping in and out of the interview a little bit. So uh, we're going to fast forward past some of the uh, issues we had with, uh, with video and audio quality uh, and get into the meat of the interview. For us, it was important that uh, the brand signify a certain taste profile, a certain quality, a certain terroir shifting mescaleros, then it, it loses that significance. Right, right. So, um, but I know you're very interested in the um, sustainability of, of the agave, and that and that's a big issue, um, partly because of the sudden increase in demand, right? Correct, correct. Yeah, I mean, you know, in the old days, not, not too long ago, I mean, before this current boom, you know, even about 10 years ago, 
the way the way mezcal was produced was not so much based on a particular narrow um, agave variety. Uh, you wouldn't go and say, oh, I want to buy a tolala or I want to buy a madre cuiche. You would typically go and say, hey, I want a mezcal from Sola de Vega or I want a mezcal from San Dionisio Cotepec. And the way they were made were really blends. It, it was a very sustainable way because the way the mezcalero would produce is that they would kind of wander around, wander around the community and find the agaves that were ripe. Mm-hmm. that were mature enough to, to produce mezcal. And that was a combination of things. Right. And then they would bring that back to their distillery and make a mezcal based on a variety. You know, now with, well, obviously the boom and, and the increase in demand in general, but the, the fact that very people focus very much on, on a particular agave variety puts the strain. Raza dropped out there for a second, but uh, obviously what he was saying was in, in the old days, uh, mezcal wasn't uh, necessarily made from one particular strain or variety of, of uh, the agave plant. And now uh, with the renewed interest, um, a lot of people are looking, uh, a lot of brands are looking to uh, produce agaves that are made from one particular uh, variety of agave. So uh, that puts a strain on that particular variety we bought additional plots of land and started growing um, the wild agaves from seed and then we waited about two or three years and i think october 2014 was our first reforestation so once so they grew on our plot for about uh, you know three years and then we've started reforest. And so we've reforested Tobala and we reforested um, Madre Cuisha already as well last summer. So you, you, you did that just to just to um, sustain the, the species, right? I mean, it's not that's not a business decision. Correct. Correct. And, but yeah, do, right. you, do you continue to grow them uh, in a nursery or a farmed environment for, for your own use? Well, I mean, we you know, we've, we've only been on business for four years and those those plants take 12 years to mature. So. Yeah. You know, so we haven't used any of those for our production. Uh-huh. Not everything that grows on the land did we take out to reforest. So there's still stuff growing on those nurseries. We also reforested so that those will reach a point where they can reproduce. Right. So where does your agave come from now? Is it all grown in the wild? Correct. Everything that you're, you know, that you'll be tasting today. Well, the 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 wild varieties will all be uh, stuff that we forage for, and so you you have to, you know, make proposals to the community and tell them how much you're going to take. Oh, I see. Well, I wondered about that because the, these plants grow and they take ten or twelve years or whatever to grow, and they they've got to be quite valuable at that point. So it's like, who who owns that plant that grows in the wild? Right. I mean, there's obviously there's a lot of, you know, it's, it, Oaxaca is also the poorest state and they can't be um, watching out over every plot of land. So there's definitely a lot of stealing going on. So the organization you founded is called Agave Silvestres. Mm-hmm. And that just means wild agaves in Spanish. Ah, gotcha. Okay. So I, I read something uh, on that website it was fascinating to me that uh, the, the plant matures and then only at, only at that point will it sprout the flower that it needs to um, reproduce. So that that makes it even harder to, to you know. So and and if it's harvested, if it's harvested to make uh, mezcal or anything else, uh, that that doesn't happen. Right. I mean, that's the big conundrum. No. So yeah. uh, it doesn't reproduce. If you if you use it for for a mezcal, it doesn't have a chance to reproduce. Fascinating. So so a certain percentage of these plants just really need to be left alone to uh, to. Uh, to run their course and and have their natural uh, their, their, to reproduce naturally. Correct. And if you think about it, even in the um, even in the the estate farmed agaves, um, you also should make sure that you, you have to make sure that certain percentage of those reproduce sexually as well. No, because from seed you'll start um, 
losing that biodiversity even within the estate farmed ones. Mm-hmm. Wow. Seems it seems very complicated, and uh, there's a lot of moving parts here. You know, it's so fascinating because every other grain, every other spirit's grown with things that, or is made with things that grow back every year. Correct. I wish I would have known that before I started. <laughs> I'm gonna go make whiskey, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it sounds easier. Yeah. Vodka, even yeah. wine. You know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow, there's a lot, a lot to it. Uh, so I, I also read there's a shortage of the wood needed to to roast the agaves. Yeah. So the good news is that a lot of a lot of um, mezcal producers. So there's two uh, occasions in which you use wood for mezcal production. One is in that step of cooking the agave, and then the the last the other time is in to light up the still. On the first one, the mezcaleros will be very reluctant to change because they believe that that smoke um, is kind of part of the essence of the, of the flavor of mezcal. Yeah. Um, but on the second one... There's some room to experiment, I suppose. Probably not alter the taste one iota, no, because it's just right. boiling the mezcal inside a copper. In the copper pot still, yeah. But there's uh, some very traditional methods there. It's a great video on uh, OaxacaMezcal.com about how mezcal is made, and they show uh, you know, using donkeys to grind the... the to make the mash so it's really fascinating to see uh that, that's yeah, an yeah, awesome that's video our, our facility yeah thanks yeah everybody should check that out the, the video on uh, oaxacamezcal.com all right well shall we taste right so you're going to taste i think the best is for you to taste the three um single variety or single single species um varieties and the beauty about doing that is that um you're, the difference that you'll taste between them is going to be predominantly the pure taste, natural taste of the agave. Right. So right. So the espadina is mentioned is the is the um, the estate farmed agave. It's um, smokiest. You know. Mm. So the espadine was um, was domesticated because it's a very uh, productive um, variety. You know, it's it's hard. Its piña is very large. It only takes six, seven, eight years. Mm-hmm. Six to eight years to mature. The blue agave is a descendant of that. Oh, is that right? Right. So it's a uh, you know, it's a very supple, supple, dry mezcal with a, you know, very round, medium to full body. I find it has a very sort of creamy, herbaceous, spicy finish. Herba- herbaceous comes up a lot, you know, with mezcal, I find it's very, uh, you just really taste the plant, you know, M- more so, I think, than, you know, in a um, in a whiskey, say, where you're really tasting the wood, you're taking, tasting the barrel, you know, but here I feel like we're really tasting the plant. Exactly. Say go to uh, Tobala. Mm-hmm. So Tobala is. Sorry, I lost you. T- Tobala is a uh, species of agave, right? Correct. Yeah, it's a it's a wild species of agave. It grows way up in the highlands, about ten thousand feet. Mm. Um, it uh, has very limited access to water. You no, know, so when it rains, the the rains obviously flow down very quickly, and uh, it has to retain whatever water it can throughout the dry season. Um, and th- that that sort of retention of water tends to give it a little more citrusy, um, floral taste. Mm. So the the water's obviously got to be, you know, with any plant, obviously, it's a big deal. But uh, I, I suppose they can go a long time like a cactus, right? Without, without water. Their, um, their roots grow very close to the air, to the top, mm. um, and spread out. And so that allows them to collect more water, you know, instead of trees whose roots go straight down. Mm. And the tobala is a very solitary agave. It's a very, it has a very small heart. The fibers are much more tightly wound. The, uh, the plants, I, I'm sure by species, the, the size of the plants varies quite a bit, right? 
but you know, Correct. Let's, say, let's say with this particular species, how, may, how much yield would you expect to get from one plant? This is a very small heart. No, the the, the espadine is you know can grow up to two three hundred pounds. Oh wow! And this heart is probably forty to sixty pounds. Mm. So you know you probably need about twenty kilos per seven hundred fifty milliliter bottle. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, actually, per, per liter, I'd say. Per liter. Uh huh. Wow. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of work. It is. It is. As you can see in the video, it's it is a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. Madre Quiche is what I would suggest yet next. Okay. Madre Quiche is another wild agave. Um, it's a very fascinating one in the sense that it looks more like a yucca tree. You know, the the typical agave has the the heart, you know, close to the to the earth, and then the leaves grow up from there. Um, the Madre Quiche and it's this whole family of the Karwinskis is more like a yucca tree. It has a trunk, and then the part part that you use to um, to make mezcal is way at top, uh, very long and narrow. Um, it grows in the central valleys, you know, so it grows about ten, sorry, five thousand feet in altitude, and it grows in Central Valley, Oaxaca, which is really volcanic ash. So you'll see it'll have a much more mineral, earthy, cinnamony taste to it. Mm-hmm. This is delicious. Yeah, you do get that minerality, uh, some of that vegetation that we talked about earlier um, has a hint of sweetness, which is very uh, pleasant. In the process of trimming down the agave plants, there's a lot that seems to, I don't know if it goes to waste or is there an, a, another use for that? Well, yes, the leaves, yeah, right. I mean, you know, when, when the Spaniards arrived in Mex- in Mexico, I think it was Bartolome de las Casas, who was a, a Jesuit priest that documented a lot. He, he called um, the agave the, the plant of a thousand uses or maybe a hundred. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, because he was he realized how, you know, that the, every piece of the agave plant was used for a different thing. You no, know, the... The thorns were used for sewing needles. The leaves were used for for the you know houses, for the walls of houses. Um, the stalk that grows at the end of its life is used as, be- as for beams on on the you know roofs of houses. Wow. Nowadays, the leaves. There's people that come after we harvest in our. There's people that come and collect the leaves, and they take it to a different place to to make paper. Oh wow! Yeah. This this is wonderful. This is. Uh... My favorite of the three so far. It's, sorry, it's my favorite too. Yeah, yeah. It has. Um, I find it's, it has just a hint of sweetness that the others don't seem to have, and uh, I don't know more complex, more going on in here. Yeah, the wilds, and then yeah, right. It has a much very very long finish. Mm. It also for some reason tingles the tongue a little, the sides of the tongue a little. It's a mm. very interesting one. Delicious. The next two you're going to taste is the blend, and then the aged one. So with the, the line of five mezcales, we try to give you one angle of the mezcal universe that you can kind of go off and explore um you know we also try to make the word oaxaca pronounceable um, yeah yeah (laughs) yeah and um you know and and again you know not not have that sort of kick in the chest that you have with uh with that higher the higher in proof um so it's you know either you you start your introduction to your mezcal with oaxaca or else you know, you could start your night of serious drinking with Miss, with Oaxaca, you know, because it's a nice, softer way to open up the palate, mm. and then move on to some to some higher level. Mm, that's delicious. Thanks. Um, and so then we're gonna go with the blend. So the blend is the ensemble. So what? It's a blend of of what? Of the first three that we taste? Yeah, espadín, uh, madre cuiche, and tobala. Um, you'll typically find blends. You know, will have a lot of espadine mm. in them. Mm. So, as you were saying earlier, blended mezcal is actually uh, a bit more traditional, yeah. Yeah, no, that's very. That's what I was saying before. It's very traditional. No, before before um, this current boom, people used to mostly make blends. They'll find, yeah, they would find the they would walk around their town and see what 
agave was most mature, mm-hmm. ready for mezcal, independent mm-hmm. of the variety. Yeah, it's hard to find enough uh, of one one variety. Yeah, correct. Yeah, I, I understand. Correct. And the uh, so the aged one will be aged aged in wood barrels or correct, correct, correct. Oak barrels. Is this a blend as well, or no? This is pure espadine. So this is pure espadine, aged about six months in oak barrels, and we also put in a worm. We put about 50, 60 worms in the barrel itself, and then one worm in each bottle. Um, and you know the 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 um, the aging adds some extra sweetness, and then we try to soften out that extra sweetness with some of the salts and bitterness of the worm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, well, tell us more about the worm. That's sure. I mean, you know the, you know, there's a bit of controversy. Uh, well, you know, the, the, well, the history of mezcal has never been recorded. No, so nobody really knows. And today, it has a bit of a negative connotation. You know, they, they people tend to say, oh, it was just a marketing ploy and all that. But the, the, you know, the truth is that the use of worms, the use of grasshoppers, the use of ticks, and all sorts of insects has always been a very big part of Oaxacan gastronomy. And so. The way we saw it is that, you know, sort of an acknowledgement of that, of, of sort of high of Oaxaca gastronomy. And so we set ourselves out to make a good mezcal with a, with a worm where the worm does add a flavor. You know? And so in that, we, we are trying to give it flavor. And then you just have to ask yourselves, do you like your, mm-hmm. the flavor or not, you know, independent mm-hmm. of, the, of, the, of the reason. And it's actually not a worm, right? It's a lar- larva? Yeah, you're right. It's actually a uh, a moth larva, but just you know, for for that's, centuries and centuries, they've been calling it worm in Spanish, and so yeah. that's how they oh, translated okay. it. Are the um, barrels charred? Yes. Yeah, it lightly. It didn't pick up much color from the wood. A little bit. We wanted to make sure you had a very clear flavor of the agave. You know, so if you age it too much, then it just tastes like you know. Well, it, it just tastes yeah, like wood or. Or whiskey, which has its which has its charm as well, but we wanted to make sure we had a very clear agave flavor. Mm-hmm. Mezcal is very, uh, you know, people people are afraid of it. They don't they don't know what to make of it. So it's just a matter of education and learning, I think. Correct. Yeah, yeah. and in a way, and in a way, for us, we felt that um, you know by having a reposado, it was a good entryway for um, for certain tequila mm-hmm. drinkers who really love the reposados and the and the añejos. Right. Well, it's it, it's an exciting time for mezcal, and you know, I know I know bartenders are excited about it. So that that can only filter through to the uh, to the consumer, right? Are you seeing it being sold more uh, to bars and restaurants, and uh, and uh, less so to, to retail, or or what? Correct. In Mexico, most of our sale about seventy percent of our sales are in retail, and about thirty percent in in restaurants and bars. And in the U.S., it's the opposite, mm-hmm. where. I'd say even even eighty percent is probably sold in bars and restaurants, and you know we're we're a self funded company. We're just kind of you know three buddies from 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 elementary school you know, that uh, moved to the U.S. at some point, and we're always wondering why there was no good. Well, in those days, no good. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of mezcal period available in the United States, good or bad, until recently. You know, fast forward twenty years, had some disposable income, and decided to pull it together to do this. No, so, but we don't have enough income to say you know put billboards like uh, you know patron or whatever you know so we rely so much on the industry people you know the the bartenders and the and the 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 chefs at the at the high-end mexican restaurants well, that's great but it, I, i'm sure you know th- there's a renewed interest in in tequila so th- this is the logical extension of that it's just a matter of uh, education and and letting people know about it well, thank you so much. I hope to run into you one of these days. Do you ever make it out to any of the trade shows? We just opened our market in New York in July. So oh, great. 
yeah, yeah via T. Edward Wines, and mm -hmm. so I might end up going a little more there than I uh, to try to open up. So maybe, um, maybe we can catch up at one of those shows. The the New York International Spirits Competition is a good one, though. And then. Well, awesome. I, I uh, continue to spread the word about Mescal. I, I love it, and I, I just want to learn more and more. And uh, as I said, I really appreciate. It. Yeah, great. We appreciate it too. You know, all the all the all the all the um, spreading of the word that we can get it, uh, really really helps us. So we really appreciate it as well. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Cheers. All right, take it easy, Brian. Bye. Now. So cool, uh, interesting subject, Mezcal, and uh, there's just a lot to learn about it. I'll link to that uh, video we were talking about on bartenderjourney.net, and uh, we'll have our toast in just a minute. But first, I'll remind you, my name is Brian Vincent Weber. You can feel free to email me for any reason at all. It's brian at bartenderjourney.net. You can find me on Twitter at barkeeptips. I'm on Instagram as bartenderjourney. And uh, bartenderjourney, uh, search for bartenderjourney in Facebook, too. You can like that page. And what else? That's enough for today. <laughs> Let's do our toast. May your glass ever be full. May the roof over your head always be strong. And may you be in heaven half an hour before the devil knows you're dead. Cheers. We'll talk to you next time on Bartender Journey. Bartender Journey.